world is becoming more unglued by the day. Local consequences are now showing up. We are seeing sky-high gas prices, higher food prices, shortages, and more. How should you respond? Go to redpills.tv slash patriot. That's R-E-D-P-I-L-L-S dot TV slash patriot. And secure your long-term emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. My Patriot Supply is by far the largest preparedness company in America. They're in stock and shipping quickly in unmarked boxes to your door. Their emergency food supplies last up to 25 years in storage. When you need it, it'll be there. Lunches, dinners, drinks, and snacks totaling over 2,000 calories a day. Get free shipping on any order over $99. Again, go to redpills.tv slash Patreon. journey of conversations on the fringe all right good morning good evening good afternoon wherever you are in the world my name is josh and welcome to the red pill project's conversations on the fringe this is where we take a break from the geopolitical conspiracy that is plaguing our planet and we venture off into the mind of things that are unknown and talk about those topics that that bring about that deeper discussion tonight we are joined by Michael Leflem, he is the best-selling author of Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming Our Lost Ancient Legacy, um, as well as an adjunct professor of philosophy and history, a scuba diver, and a columnist for the New Dawn Magazine and Publishers Weekly. Uh, you guys might remember him. He was on Earth Chronicles with myself and David Whitehead, as well as on the DW uh, Truth Warrior podcast. He's been on Coast to Coast AM, Next Level Soul, and many other podcasts. And I'm excited to have him here for the first time on Conversations on the Fringe. Michael, how are we doing, man? Thank you for having me, Josh. I appreciate it. I appreciate you being here, man. So, you know, I was listening to a lot of the conversation we had on Earth Chronicles and, um, you know, it, it was just such a good conversation. We talked a lot about Edgar Casey. We talked about Atlantis. We talked about a lot of things that mm-hmm. are happening in the world today. And I, I find it interesting that a lot of things that are happening in the world today relate to what has happened in our past, what has happened in our ancient past, and sure. kind of what David Whitehead would call this uh, <laughs> this ancient trauma that we suffered. Right. Right. No, I agree. Um, 
And, you know, even down to the the factions that certain channelers, for example, like Edgar Casey mentioned, you know, he mentioned this kind of, um, broadly speaking, division within all three of the Atlantean iterations over a span of about 50,000 years in his timeline, um, which would be the what he called the children of the law of one, which were this kind of, you know, not perfect, but a kind of unity party centered around the idea that, you know, our goal is spiritual evolution. Uh, although they had members that were not perfect, it wasn't this just purely enlightened council. They were just, you know, human beings that had flaws, but they were set against what he called the sons of Belial, which were a kind of transhumanist, eugenics, hedonistic group, more akin to say certain members of the World Economic Forum today. Um, and it's interesting because when he was writing these, or when he was dictating these uh, trans readings in the 1920s and 30s mainly, um, you know, he himself was aware that these same forces were building up in the lead up to Hitler's rise to power and totalitarianism in Western Europe leading up to World War II, um, which he, by the way, predictly, uh, correctly predicted all the players that would be aligned against each other in World War II about six, seven years before the actual war broke out. Um, and he even claimed that a lot of these forces from the what he called the Atlantean experience, particularly the third and final destruction around 10,000 BC, the one Plato would have been you know, responsible for transmitting, although there were two more, were very much likely back in the 20th century. And that souls traveled in groups, in reincarnation groups, and that they actually came back together to replay certain traumas and karmic debts. And so I think it actually is a quite compelling um, kind of addition, you know, to maybe like a traditional Hegelian uh, dialectical view of history, which is to say that, you know, there's a impersonal spirit of history that kind of moves around the world through world historical figures. And I talk about that a little bit in the book, but the reincarnation aspect, I think, is the kind of missing link, to me at least, that really explained, you know, a lot of kind of irrational um, behaviors of human societies and why they seem to be, you know, in some cases so hell-bent on one way, in a way that's not even clearly to their advantage, as I think we're seeing today with a lot of these policies around the world. You know, it, it's interesting. I've had some conversations with uh, with different podcasters, David and so forth, uh, David Ike being one of them, mm -hmm. about this idea of the collective conscious mm -hmm. and that the collective conscious manifests various different archetypical expressions and that as mm -hmm. the, the world progresses, that mm -hmm. that energy can become imbalanced to where the the collective conscious will manifest a, a an opposition to bring everything right. back in balance. It'll manifest a Hitler. It'll manifest a Stalin. Yes. It'll manifest yes. a Klaus Schwab in order to bring mm -hmm. everything back in balance. And I actually think that's, you know, and you mentioned the collective unconscious, like a Jungian concept. I actually think, having read a lot of the works of Hegel and when I was in graduate school and, and writing about his theories a little bit, um, I think that's kind of what he meant by the the, the spirit of history. You know, I, I think that like, you know, and it, it actually, if you think about it, I was thinking about this many times as somebody interested in military history and things like this. It's like, you know, recently you know, read a, 
incredible Napoleon biography. And it's like, you know, how many times can, you know, a bullet whiz past your head or your horse get hit with a cannon or somebody right next to you on the bridge, Rango, get killed. And yet you never get touched by the war. And you impart this like almost inhuman for one human being, unaided by, say, extra <laughs> conscious forces. You, you impact history on such a grand scale, you know, whether it be like the you know, in his case, again, it's a complicated character, but I think on a positive side, you could say, well, he, he himself would argue, I extended the virtues of the French Revolution when all the monarchies wanted to just crush it, you know, and obviously it's not that simple, but, you know, to some extent he did, or Alexander the Great, you know, how many times can a sword or a spear miss you at the Battle of Galgamela or the Hydaspes River? You know, it's like, almost like you are selected or Joan of Arc, you know, a teenage right. freeing France from the, you know, one of the greatest armies of that generation. And it's like, yet you do it, you know, and you might meet a crazy end or an early death, but while you're on that path, it's almost as if you are guided by what we would call supernatural or unconscious forces. And I think it's absolutely true that, you know, something has to be at work. You know, we call it luck for lack of a better word in our scientific right materialistic world. But I mean, statistically, you know, it, it's not likely that one or two human beings could have achieved these things. And yet most of the greatest historical achievements, be it civil rights, wars, or defeating, you know, people in wars have been the result largely of individuals, you know, like Jesus, Martin Luther King, Joan of Arc, you know, Lao Tzu, all these great philosophers and warriors and men and women of all races. And it's like, I think, Hegel was onto something, you know, that, that there is something kind of bigger, you know, in all of that. And I think in, in this might be, maybe not to your viewers, but about this a lot in view of like the Trump situation, you know, and it's like, love him, hate him, regardless, even those that hate him have to admit this is something different. This is now a world yeah. historical character, whether you like him or not. And I can't say seen a world historical presidential candidate in my own lifetime, you know, and I'm be 40 so, years old. This year. So it's interesting. So it, it is really interesting. And there's something very special about Trump. And I've had uh, Laura Lee Skyfe on here. I don't hmm. know if you know her. She's uh, friends with David as well. David's had her on a show a few times, uh, um, okay. but she is a union astrologer. So there's oh, a wow. form of astrology that uh, includes uh, the, the whole union archetypical nature into it. And wow. I will tell you that this level of astrology is incredibly precise. I, I, mm. she's been helping me out this last year, and I will tell you, my mind has just been blown. People, I would love this audience to work with it. her. Actually, I would love I will, to I will actually put you get in a contact. Reading. Please, I'll put you in contact. Please. But she did. Um, she ran Trump's birth chart. Sure. And Trump's birth chart is like he was born on a uh, a lunar eclipse. He okay. was born in the um, the what he's a leo so lion mm -hmm. his yeah. moon is in leo like mine's in leo too <laughs> yeah so everything about him is basically what uh right. the birth chart of kings right of kings right. and royalty right and like that's why he says the stars have written it out for me he's and you know it's lion. interesting i i actually about a year ago um i looked at a vedic astrologer who's been quite accurate predicting the last four years you know events and she ran his birth chart and she said the same thing 
this, this is the birth chart of a king, you know, as we would see it, like him or love him. It's written in the chart. Um, and I think that's absolutely interesting. You know, speaking of astrology, um, Josh, I noticed something quite interesting, which is, you know, somebody noted that the correct adjusted for the precession of the equinox um, Pluto return, the, the destroyer of empires traditionally, or the, mm-hmm. the renewer, if you want to think of it that way, but things have to be destroyed sometimes. Um, a lot of people thought that Pluto return. Uh, Michael, you broke up there. We lost you. Well, we're going to try to get Michael back here. He's in Mexico. He's got a little bit of a uh, connection. We will uh, we'll get Michael back here. So, Michael, once you're back, just let me know. I'm going to drop you from the primary. And, uh, yeah, we'll get him back here. So, fascinating conversation so far. I, I want to hear what Michael has to say about this Pluto return. Um, and, you know, a lot of what we're talking up there. Hey, <laughs> there you are. Okay, I warned you. I warned no, you. I'm, it, on, I'm okay. on my Mexican Wi-Fi. I, I got no control. Well, that. if you need to just go to audio, um, if that works better, just you can drop the audio if that's fine. But it's, it's ah, okay. sure, yeah. If if it cuts out again, um, but what I want to yeah. say is, um, I recently read um, a really interesting article where they adjusted the correct or what they believe is the correct Pluto return date for the United States. A lot of people thought it was two years ago, but it turns out. <laughs> it's February 22nd, roughly 2024, hmm. is when the United States Pluto comes back to the same place it was. Yesterday. Yeah, in July 4th, 1776. Hmm. And to me, it's it's quite astounding, you know, whether people believe in astrology or not. It's like, what, has the United States population been more revolutionary, you know, than every day that goes by? No, it hasn't. You know, with those types of topics and for people who are skeptical in nature about these types of things, hmm. what I like to do is I like to take them through uh, various different thought processes to really understand kind of what this is. When you say astrology, people are like, you know, I go to the New York Times and I look up if I'm a Capricorn or a Libra and it's going (laughs) to tell me what my day is going to be like. Right. But that's not astrology. No, it's not at all. It's a science. It is a science, and, I, and this is the kind of the idea that I want people to see about this, is imagine for a moment that we exist in an ocean of energy, of yeah. subtle energy fields all interacting. Right. That intertwined within these over time and expansion of the universe is the trail of you, of who you are, and the overplacement of all the movements around you. Well Those said. things have imprinted expressions of archetypes on you as in the ancients in the past right they noticed hey when the moon's doing this or the sun's doing this or jupiter's over here i typically feel this way i have this expression and why is that because these big planets even though they might be far away or or whatnot Mm -hmm. they are making waves it's like a rock being dropped into that ocean of subtle energy where the ripples come out and affect everything in its path and those yeah. ripples have a frequency and a vibration which express archetypes within us. You know, I have to, <laughs> very beautifully said, I have to find this. Give me one second here because you just said yeah. something that I wrote actually in my book um, on that exact subject. Uh, let me just see here. It shouldn't be. 
just check the enrollment here. Um, yeah. Well, I'll give you a yeah, little but, background here while I'm looking for it. But hey, yeah, in, in when I was in Chicago, um, a friend of mine introduced me to the work. Speaking of subtle planetary emanations, he introduced me to the work of this relatively unknown uh, researcher who his name is Ernest Emery Richards, and he was a professor of uh, physics at the University of Maine. And he had written this unpublished article on like a GeoCities website that he, you know, had published. Um, he had published something he wrote in 1990 hmm. that I really recommend people read called Geometry of Infinite Mind. And, you know, I think he just wrote it for fun as a side note. And it just out a weird, you know, kind of chance, I ended up finding him. I sent him an email while I was writing this uh, Atlantis book because I was curious about his research. And he goes, you know, believe it or not, I'm coming to Chicago to visit my granddaughter next week or something like that. Do you want to meet up? And I actually showed up at the train station, you know, with a, with a sign like the old school, you know, Dr. Richards. Yeah. And we picked him up in our car. And before we knew it, we we're hanging out with this guy all damn day. And he brought like a stack of documents this big. And he's like, you know, I'm an old man. And I, I just wanted to give this to somebody because nobody really cares about my research in Maine. And I was like, well, you know, I can't I can't take this now. You know, you put me in your will or something. But what he did was he ended up spending like 10 hours with us, giving us this free wow. presentation on all of his research, scientific research, using electronic equipment to measure planetary emanations, you know, and I, I, I was, I put it in the book actually, because nobody had ever talked about this guy. And it actually confirmed so much of what I had suspected from astrology, how astrology actually functions on a material level. And then it also confirmed a lot of what Edgar Cayce said, the roles of the planets were, you know, because for Edgar Cayce, he said, every time you go to sleep, your consciousness travels throughout the solar system to different planetary fields and picks up insights from these different planets. That's what Edgar Cayce said. Right. And he said that each of the planets, much like the ancients believed, contained a unique personality. You know, and I even found that in one of Plato's dialogues, I believe in the same ones that he mentioned Atlantis, either Critias or Timaeus, he describes the origin of the universe. And he says, when the planets, well, yeah, there it is. That's a phenomenal, phenomenal article. Um, and I guess in 1990, as a professional teacher, he couldn't you know, publish that because he yeah. would be considered a weirdo. But it's I, really I amazing. This. I'll publish this on our Substack for everybody out there. I'll tell, I'll tell him. He's a, he's a good one now. And oh, I'd love, I'd love to have him on the show. One, actually. I'd love to have him on the show. Yeah, I would. I'll, I'll ask him. <laughs> he's an old man now, but I'm going to ask him. He's he's in a camp or somewhere in Maine. I got to track him down. But, you know, what he found out was that on a like alpha, theta, gamma frequency range using radio equipment that he built as a physics, like you, he's, you know, he's an electronics expert. And he found ways to measure this, you know, and actually wrote down the data. And he determined exactly what you said. In fact, that he says in the book, in his article, he's like subtle ripples, you know, from the, gla the galaxy wash over you every day, whether you realize it or not. And yep. it has an it has a very strong effect on you, whether you realize it or not. That human consciousness is 
he would argue, largely determined by planetary emanations, not by, you know, even as much as culture so much, you know, and in terms of a global collective evolution, primarily driven by galactic emanations from the yep. sun or from the planets and their alignments and their conjunctions and things like this. And I mean, if you just look at the charts of other cultures, Pluto returns. It's like it tracks rises and falls of empires. It tracks when world wars start, you know, it tracks. And it's not just that planet. It's, you know, people who are much more. I gotta look, keep on going. I got to look this up now. Tell you. Keep on going. Yeah. But it's just it's it's amazing how, you know, even the planet uh, or planet toyed, I guess, K2, how it affects, you know, war. Um, as I get, you know, more into this Vedic astrology, it's, it's quite interesting. But again, I think it's just it's another tool, you know, put in your um, kind of trick bag to understand the, the current madness. Because one thing I learned from reading a lot of sources when I was writing this book is that when you have a question like the, the civilization of Atlantis, or you have a question of, you know, like the future of the United States, you can't just be a reductionist and say, well, due to economic circumstances, this is going to happen. Or, you know, well, when the war in Ukraine ends, like there are so many like ineffable wild cards that I think people forget because we, whether it's intentional, probably <laughs> institutionally, or if it's just the way the world's going, we have really trended in modernity, at least in the West, towards this, I'm, I'm using Marxist in an economic sense, a Marxist interpretation of reality, which is economic, you know, Paul Krugman said this, so it's like, but I think people forget that, like, life is so much more irrationally driven and unpredictable, you know, as you can see from the way that they're but, treating but, but Donald wait, Trump. But is it? Well, so, on, so, I think on an observable level, it's it's unpredictable. I think you can look at trends agreed. and go, this is more likely than not to happen. But between now and the election, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't. Anyone that tells you they know is full of shit. I got a pretty fucking good idea. I got a pretty right. good idea. You We've do. You probably accurate. you you probably of all people. Have been but I, I'm, a, but I'm, a, I, I'm a pearl stringer, right? But I that's, think that's my gift. Right. But I think even you have to admit that it's like the, the amount, the, the, the data set of the chaos is becoming oh almost uh, like a, a hyper novelty Umberto Echo shit where well, it's getting to the point the where you can't even keep track of how many tricks these people are playing at this point. Right. But but here's the beautiful thing about that. And this is something that I've researched and studied for a long time. It goes into mm -hmm. what we're just talking about with the subtle energy fields and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I studied the occult and the the mysteries for a very long time, 20 right. plus 30 years. Right. Wow. And just dabbled here, dabbled there. I would get into various different philosophies and I started noticing patterns because that's what I do. I, I, I notice patterns. Um, I, some things happened to me in around 2008 to 2010. It was a revolutionary time. Mm -hmm. um, I was delving deep into uh, some, some, some magic stuff and oh. some weird shit started happening in my life. Okay. And I'm like, okay, I need to put this stuff away because okay. it's, I just, I just, I'm not there yet. Right. 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 
and I put it away and I ended up bringing it back and kind of starting like this, this whole research and study and investigation in this stuff again around mm. 2015, 2016. Um, but I did it through a different recourse. I said, I want to be able to take, because I believe that a lot of these ancient texts, a lot of these mythological stories, mm-hmm. this is an extrapolation of information. It's, it's information layered on top of itself that is trying to tell us more things than we could ever imagine. One of them being is the, the nature of reality. So it's scientific in nature. So I went back to school. I started studying physics. I went to CU Boulder mm-hmm. and I started just kind of paying attention and, and, and really focusing in on those things. And I started to develop a theory derived from kind of the occult studies and the esoteric studies, uh, a theory that kind of wrapped them all together. Mm. And one thing that I do is I bring everything down to that base foundational yeah. level. I've noticed. And that's, I think, really important because, and again, not to cut you off, but it's yeah. so important to do that. And in fact, yeah. in in Frederick Oliver, who was another channeler or clairaudient uh, <laughs> author from the 19th century who's who famously wrote a 400 page channeled manuscript on Atlantis that I believe I'm the only one that's really engaged with as a serious text most people think it's crazy but one of the things he said about how the people at the height of Atlantis viewed reality it's exactly that way and down to their material sciences where for example, you know, I'll go right back to you in a second, but just before yeah. I forget, um, he even mentions at one point Atlantean chemistry. And he's like, you see, you all think in the 19th century, and you could say today, that there's this thing called the periodic table and that all these substances are different. But what you don't understand is that there's one substance in the entire universe and everything materially expressed is a vibrational change of the one. And when you understand that, then you can you understand things like transmutation. You can understand things like, you know, creating aluminum out of clay, which is what we did, as he says in the book, referencing his past life in 11,160 BC, to be precise. And I think that's also what Casey said, is that the children of the law of one, the law of one, not the new age law of one that came out mm-hmm. in the 20th century in the United States, but the ancient law of one. That I think you're alluding to, like this, that that these people across the world, in whatever ancient culture you want to call it, Atlantis or its concurrent other empires, they understood reality at a scientifically higher level to us, on a point where we would call that spiritual or woo. But to right. them, they would look at us just like little children playing with a you know erector set, thinking that agreed material. <clears throat> Damn. You know, um, material science can explain uh, all of reality or that inanimate matter generates consciousness instead of the other way around, which is that consciousness is primary and it generates material science. You know, and, you know, and you, know how I describe, you know how I describe modern science or modern day physics, quantum theory. I, I describe that? it like this, is that you have a bunch of men looking at 137 nails, two pieces of wood and three windows. And they're trying to explain the skyscraper that they don't understand. Wow. I would agree. Right? And, yeah. and, and, and they're sitting there going, well, this is how we can make a house out of it. This is how mm-hmm. we can make a structure out of it. Look, it, it, it works. It comes together. Right. And they completely don't have that, that understanding of it. And, right. and that's why I like to break things down to the basic components. So I, I started asking myself questions. I said, what is one thing that 
everything in the entire universe does consistently, what is the one thing? It doesn't matter if it's the cosmological, the macro, the molecular, right. the quantum, the subquantum on the plane. What is the one thing right. that always happens? And that really comes down to this, is that there's always a transference of energy, is that yeah. our universe is a system of energy exchange. I call it the principle of exchange. That's that, that's at the most fundamental level. I don't even see how that's disputable. That's down right. to down have... to string theory. Down to everything is vibrating. And you know that's really interesting. I'll maybe say it here for the first time, just because I've only told this to a few friends of mine. But I always am interested in etymology, and I was thinking about a similar thing as you uh, a couple months ago, and it dawned on me that there might even be a clue in Cartesian uh, philosophy where. Descartes famously, you know, cogito ergo sum, but also he said, you know, he calls physical reality extension. You know, he's like, for something to be real, it must have extension. And if you think about it, X in Greeks means from, and then, so from tension. So everything comes from tension, which to me almost was like, maybe he was subconsciously talking about the fact that at the, you know, sub, most subatomic particle level we can measure today, everything is vibrating. You know, nothing is static. You know, it's like the universe is going through like what Cliff High would say is a, a refresh rate of the trillions, just like a, a computer. And we've had to create technology to almost retrospectively understand nature. And I think that lends itself to a lot of these kind of silly cartoonish ideas of what if the universe is a simulation? It's like, what if your simulation is a simulation? And what if the universe predated your creation of computers? It's quite arrogant. Well, the computers are PC. It's like, um, I'm pretty sure it's a little more sophisticated than that. You know, um, I think we have well, it backwards it, it, and we just can't see that sometimes, you know. We have it absolutely backwards. So when I was at CU Boulder, um, one of the classes that I was in, I think it was um, it was one of the quantum theory classes I was in third year physics. Mm. Um, we were watching the debate on the uh, simulation theory. Sure. This was, I think, 2015, Neil deGrasse Tyson. You had all those guys there. <laughs> and um, it was a joke. And I yeah. kind of, they, they were asking questions after the, the, the whole conference. And I stood up and I said, I don't think those guys can even comprehend the reality of the question was posed. And my professor mm. said, well, what do you mean? And I said, the, the question isn't if we live in a simulation. The question is, is that what is the nature of the universe? Because we are developing technology in this day to replicate reality. Exactly. We are taking computer tech. We are taking atoms and formulating them together into computer chips and producing memory and processing power and developing these virtual constructed worlds. Right. Right. Which are simulatory in nature. Right. But yet, how are we developing them? We're developing with the constructs of nature itself. We're modeling right. them off of nature itself. We're using the programming language that nature itself uses. Exactly. So it's not as if the universe is a simulation, but no. yet that our simulations are very elementary and rudimentary universes. Precisely. Precisely. And I, I've said this to so many of my friends and they don't like that. You know, no. some of them are programmers and it's like, but it's that arrogance, you know, it's that same scientific materialistic arrogance that, you know, leads so many people to discredit ideas that perhaps we're not at the apex of technology. You know, perhaps 
in these Atlantean civilizations in iterations that I mentioned in the book as, you know, described by certain channelers. And I would argue by the physical remnants of, say, the Pyramid of Giza, uh, we're not at the apex of technology. And in fact, we've lost all of this knowledge and we're just barely crawling back to the heights that we used to be at. Um, Now, going into what we were just talking about there about the subtle energy field, I wanted to talk about this because you were talking about the influence (laughs) of the cosmic cosmic waves onto us. And one thing that I've always talked about is how our our solar system is moving through the Orion arm of the galaxy. And it towards the center of the Orion arm is higher density, higher energy particleization, which means that that's going to increase the electrical potency of our sun as it moves through. And this is actually what we're moving into right now. It's kind of like a cosmic spring, if you want to look at it like this. Correct. And I I said that this is actually the moving force behind evolution, that this is is what produces evolution within within a species. Now, interesting enough, I didn't see this article until just recently, but this was discovered in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there's a new structure that was discovered in the Orion arm of the Milky Way galaxy called Radcliffe waves. Um, mm-hmm. The Radcliffe waves are basically, they're, they're nebulas that form in a sinusoidal wave. And so okay. to give everybody an example of what a Radcliffe wave does, is this is the animation of a Radcliffe wave. These are Mm. new stars being formed and they move up and down in a sine wave through the galactic arm. They go down to the bottom, they go up in polarity, down in polarity, and they move through the densest parts. Now, one thing that they don't extrapolate on here is that those nebulas nebulas will eventually become stars, right? Okay. Do we think that that sine wave stops moving just because they become stars? (laughs) Right. That Radcliffe wave doesn't start, stop. It continues, which means that we are in a connected line of multiple other stars born around the same time as us that are all on a process of evolution, moving through this galactic arm, through various different densities and ionization Mm -hmm. points of energy, which affect us just like we were talking about and produce this evolution. And I believe that we're, and this is what I learned from all those years of study, Mm -hmm. is that we are moving into this point of, of conscious evolution. That right yeah. now it's happening. It's undeniable. This is why it, 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 it's undeniable. Happening. Yeah, it's undeniable. And it's not just like it, you can't attribute it to conventional things. You can't say, well, it's because we have X now, or well, it's because of Trump. Well, it's like, no, those are symptoms, I would argue, of right. the primary mover, which is something much greater. Call it the collective unconscious or emanations or moving closer to galactic center. And, you know, some researchers have proposed that, you know, during that 25,800 year processional cycle, um, that indeed, that if you look at the, you know, path of the earth in respect to galactic center, where a lot of these emanations come from that drive evolution, um, like the Kali Yuga, things like that, sink, you know, and you don't receive as much of that galactic, uh, evolutionary wave pattern form. And so it makes sense because, I mean, the ancients were obsessed with something that, you know, we would call, you know, bogus today, but it's because it's like most things, just like Atlantis, it's, there are serious people and then there are silly people that do, you know, there's, there's silly tarot readers. There's Michael Tsarian. There's silly Disney movies on Atlantis. There's, you know, my book, Ignatius Donnelly's book, Rudolf Stein. 
Snyder's book, uh, you know, Michelle de Montaigne's critique of uh, other people. You know, it's like, so you always have to look at the best and the most kind of sophisticated uh, form of something before you just make fun of it. You know, like before you say, oh, you you believe in tarot. It's like, uh, well, do you, what do you know about tarot? You know, why don't you talk to somebody that studied the tarot for 20 years and they'll explain to you how it's a reflection of archetypes that were encoded, not just oh, six of swords, then you're going to break up with your girlfriend. Right. So there's there's levels to all sorts of things. You know, and you mentioned yourself, like you can get your tropical zodiac and open the, you know, like my grandmother used to do all the time. She always did your, your horse. She'd send me newspaper clippings in grad school. Oh, it's going to be bad for cancer this month. Be careful. Play the you know, and, today. Yeah, and she was a very innocent, you know, 90-year-old woman. But, you know, I think in a weird way, though, she was not silly because she recognized certain patterns in her own life. Um, but, you know, for her, she didn't have access to a lot of the things we have today. She comes from a different world. And she yeah. would say, you know, it's it's a bad month or it's your lucky month for cancer. And I'd say, you know, the New York Times always tells me I'm going to be rich this month. And I, <laughs> I didn't get it yet. But when you look into, like, say astrology or sidereal astrology and you know you listen to a five-hour lecture on a person who you know from india who's like look we we use this here you know we we actually uh, many people claim that a lot of indian politicians make moves based on vedic astrology to this day and i think it's kind of silly to think i know ronald reagan used an astrologer i forget her name what's her name um elizabeth claire prophet i think he used for something uh psychic and I'm sure Trump uses psychics, and I'm sure Vladimir Putin uses, I'm sure most world leaders, I'm sure Jamie Dimon has a psychic. I wouldn't even bat an eye. Because if you look at the client log, for example, of Edgar Casey, he was getting visited by top executives from Henry Ford. He was getting visited by, arguably, it's not clear because the name was redacted, but you can deduce that Nikola Tesla got a past life reading from Edgar Casey. You know, Woodrow Wilson got a past life reading from Edgar Casey. You know, other oil prospectors, the people looking for the Lusitania asked Edgar Casey. Amelia Earhart's husband did a trance reading. Where's my, you know, wife? What happened to her? And Edgar Casey, that's a, I put that reading in the book because I had never seen anybody talk about it because I wanted to show people, look, this isn't just some fringe thing. Like the New York Times wrote articles about the miracle worker, you know, in Kentucky that can heal people in his sleep. But when he's awake, he doesn't know anything. And they sent five doctors to debunk him and nobody could do it. Nobody and he was a very explain. religious man. He was a devoutly religious Baptist and his yeah. own trance readings contradicted a lot of his orthodox beliefs, yep. like reincarnation and pushing the timeline back of humanity in the 1930s. You know, most people didn't think humanity was 300,000 years old. Professional anthropologists didn't think that in 1932. Edgar Cayce did, though, or his source that he channeled said that. You know, And he had to come to grips with that, just like he had to come to grips with who he was in a past life, which is that one of the most fascinating uh, arcs of, I think, the book, which is that, you know, he ends up being a very important person from the Atlantean exile or exodus mm -hmm. in 10,500 BC, a few centuries before the final destruction, to Giza, according to Casey, to build the Great Pyramid as a final redoubt for the coming catastrophe and mm -hmm. to preserve knowledge. 
but also as a technology. And Casey played a big role in that as this former figure called Rata, who was this strange priest from the Caucasus Mountains who came down to Egypt, intermixed with the indigenous Egyptian people. And then at that same time, you had an influx of Atlanteans coming in to create this multicultural 10,500 BC Egyptian experience, which Casey said was one of the most important experiences in the human collective consciousness because it was the sole in kind of intact remnant of the previous Atlantean empire that was about to be destroyed. And that most of our understanding of Egypt is fully incomplete. If we just stop at dynastic, you know, third century or excuse me, third millennia BC type stuff, Casey would say, the real experience of Egypt was at that 10,500 BC mark when what you think is dynastic construction actually began. And he even describes how it was built because somebody asked him that. He gives the date. He says it was built in 10,490 BC and it took 100 years. And they said, okay, uh, how was it built? He said, using the same forces that make iron swim stone floats in the same manner Hmm. that's the direct quote and what's interesting is that that's not an arbitrary date 10,490 to 10,390 because that's the exact window robert boval discovered in the 80s looking at an overhead view of the three pyramids of giza isolation orion would have been a perfect match with those pyramids was 10,450 plus or minus 50 years as boval said and that so, flat earther right and I don't know if the flat earthers still think it's lined up <laughs> well I mean they think a lot of things and, and you know the thing is look I I had a friend who I would argue was just as smart as you or me you know I, I really mean this sincerely I'm still friends with him but he he would debate me we'd go play pool and drink every Saturday and I swear to God I probably spent more time listening to flat earth theories from this man who's an extremely intelligent person but he was just so wedded to this idea that i kind of just had to say look like i we just agree to disagree and i actually don't even give a shit i just want to play pool you know but he'd always be like is this pool table moving and we're like okay like you know but he obviously had much more sophisticated arguments than that with refraction and reflection and this and that but to me it always was um I would always deflect it kind of by saying, well, you know, if you really think about it, Navid, um, it's a philosophical question. If you really think about it, because human perspective is based on three dimensionality under the atmosphere. So naturally, any view of the earth from outside of its atmosphere cannot be compared to a view of the earth from its atmosphere. And so the concept of a sphere is a concept we've developed here under the atmosphere in our dimensional framework. And so it's kind of like if you were to go into space, if such a thing, you know, is possible and we could look through a, again, recreation of our atmosphere at our own planet. What are we really looking at at the end of the day? You know, that's how I would kind of end the discussion. It's a perspectival issue, you know, but if it's curved or flat. I, I'm pretty sure well, it's it, in our understanding of what these terms even mean, it's spherical and it does. Well, and for 99% of, of all the flat earthers, it's ideological in nature. 
Right. It is the, the proof that they have to have in order to prove that God, their God or their belief in God is yeah. legitimate. And that's one thing that we found out by going down that road. Well, and let me ask I you think. a question, because I know yeah. you and David have like battled these people for so long. What is okay? What is underneath it? Is it like when you pull up like a weed, it's like a bunch of weeds underneath it? And then what's underneath the weeds? Because if it's flat and if it's a dome, then is the it the universe? Because this is the part I always used to ask him. And that's when he would just say, well, we don't know. And I'm like, well, you don't know that, but you're sure that it's true, though. Because I always well, wondered, like, okay, you, you pull up the lid. Like, if it's flat, if it's a disc, you pull up the manhole lid. What's under there? Weeds? Long roots? You, you, know what got, you, you know what got me is when I said I was in the United States Navy. I left from California on a U.S. <laughs> Navy warship. And we traveled right. due west, and we got to Singapore. You got no, no, no. You got to the ice wall of Antarctica. Well, no, I got to Singapore, right? No, you and were using like, you were using fake maps, though. And they told me I was lying. Right, of course. I, yeah, who are you going to believe? Two like weeks, a Navy veteran that's yeah. traveled the world. You know, two to three pilot. weeks, and we got over there. And right. here's the thing: is on a flat Earth map, I would have hit an ice wall. They said, "Well, no, you must have went all the way around." Go all the way around, but it took a long Well, they've changed the maps. They've changed the maps. Oh, yeah. Because satellite, right. you know, the other part, not to waste any more time, but it is so. I've never talked about this on air. But it's the other thing I asked him was, okay, so what about and again, I'm like, I'm as skeptical as most people about you know the moon landing. That that that's that's independent of does space exist? You know, it's not you can't. The two are not mutually exclusive. Like space could exist and the moon landing could have been faked. Do you know what I mean? But I always used to ask him, okay, if space doesn't exist in the flat earth model, so you you think that satellites are fake? And yeah. he would say, well, yeah. Well, we all, we've, we've always had land-based communication that exceeded our uh, domestic needs. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm sure that's true. But why would you go to these lengths to pretend there's space. It, it's such a over-the-top explanation because then you start having to basically create a, a, a separate reality that, that only fits your reality. And it's like well, it, so and that's every the psychological every, warfare aspect. Right, exactly. Right. And I'm 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 actually positive that I think it was I don't know if it was Michael Aquino or somebody in the CIA that was tasked with promulgating a flat earth theory in the 80s to see how gullible a certain target mm, population would be. That's a true yeah. story. I'm not sure if it was Aquino. I'd like to find that out too. The Satanist. But there's absolute proof, I think it was from a FOIA request, that the CIA was interested in seeing how susceptible people would be to flat earth. So now, let that as be. for the, uh, the part about satellites being fake, yeah. I was on a U.S. Navy ship in the middle <laughs> of the Pacific Ocean, 300 miles away, from any piece of land. There mm -hmm. are no cables that we're hooking up underneath the ship that give data communications. We had right. satellite TV, internet, right. and data uplink. Right. There's no there's no single satellite just following one ship around in the middle of the, right. the ocean. Okay. There's right. actual <laughs> satellites up there right. doing that. So I know. But they don't want to hear that. They just well, say, also oh, the, other, the other the other thing too is like I think a lot of these people don't realize that that the ancients understood the earth was spherical, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that the medieval well, it's, European it's idea, right. It's, exactly. It's in Greek philosophy too. And it's like, 
if Pythagoras knew this, um, again, it, it just goes back to a lot of people are convinced that history is not cyclical. Like, how could they have known that? And then Europeans in, say, you know, pre-Columbian Europe forgotten that. It's like, because transmission of knowledge is not teleological and inevitable. Yep. Things are lost, you know? That's why you have the Dark Ages after the fall of Rome, after the Library of Alexandria is destroyed hundreds of years before that. You have the loss of a total knowledge base, you know? Um, so again, it's like, were they... When they built the Great Pyramid, which which is, like you said, premised on the idea, which, by the way, I mean, that object itself, the people that built that almost indisputably had to have mapped the Earth. Because the, the pyramid itself, as Christopher Dunn has shown, is a mathematical integer of the weight of the Earth. Well, also, you know? the, the, the it's also different... It's yeah. also at the center of the Earth's landmass, and it divides the hemispheres, you know? So this idea that, you know, this was a ceremonial tomb for Khufu, which itself is a fiction created in the 19th century, of which there's zero evidence, and I'll debate anybody on that. I'll bring all of my team to that. I'll bring Marco Vigato, who wrote an excellent article on, you know, 13 reasons, I have it on my website, 13 reasons why Khufu didn't build the pyramid. Um, but it's true. It's like, even look, when Charles Hapgood sent the Piri Reyes map to the United States Naval Survey Office in the 60s, and he said, can you explain to me how a map from 1513 from Turkey has Antarctica mapped? And is this accurate? And the United States Navy sent them a message back and said, uh, this is as accurate as our modern survey of the Antarctic region. But this makes no sense because the level of presumed knowledge in 1513 could not have been that advanced. And in fact, it presupposes that they had aerial survey oh. Lost it real quick there, Michael. Just let me know when you're back. Hey. There you and go. what I was saying is, and, and that map, some people have suggested had to have been created through aerial reconnaissance, you know, and yeah. itself, you know, was based on much older, unknown ancient source maps, probably from the Library of Alexandria, which, according to Casey, was not built during the reign of Ptolemy in Alexandria after Alexander's conquest, but was actually built in 10,300 B.C., <laughs> if you can believe that. And so Edgar yeah. Casey said that library is over 12,000 years old. And when it was destroyed, along with it went the largest collection of accumulated knowledge ever accrued in one location on Earth. That's what Edgar Casey said. You know, the same man that, by the way, 50 years before NASA discovered it, said, oh, by the way, there's a giant now subterranean river system. Did we lose him? Hey. Shoddy, shoddy. Hey, I'm sorry, <laughs> no, it's all good, man. We're almost we're almost done. But I was gonna say yeah. the other thing, you know, that Edgar Casey said just before we we um move on here, um, is let's look at things he actually did get right. Like in 1932, he said 
that same year, he said the pyramid's 10,500 BC, roughly years old. Um, he said, look, a lot of people don't know that there used to be an enormous river system that had its headwaters near the Red Sea that traversed Central Africa and emptied into the Atlantic Ocean on the Congo end of the country. He said this in 1932. His stenographer just wrote it down. Well, in, as I show in the book, in 1986, Science Magazine Journal publishes an article, hey, we just discovered using satellite imaging radar, or I'm sorry, space shuttle imaging radar, a giant subterranean river system as big as the Amazon with its headwaters at the Red Sea that empties into the Bight of Benin near the Congo end of Africa. And it's like, okay, like, that's a lucky guess. You know, that's a really lucky guess if, if all of this is just make-believe. You know, and as I show in the book, you know, uh, I didn't cite this excellent book that I ended up reading after I published my book by Stephen Schwartz called The Secret Vaults of Time from the 70s. And uh, he uses basically uh, accounts from other psychics to show how archaeologists going back into the early 20th century have used archaeologists to find mundane things, you know, like, hey, we're looking for this old chapel. And they get a remote viewer or a clairvoyant priest or a village elder. And he says, you're looking for this, you know, Mayan temple or this relic. It's here. And he, he documents this in this book. And it's like, and he himself is, you know, trained in remote viewing with the team. He runs the Mobius Institute. And he's told me and in personal communications and through his recent books, that like he's used remote viewers to find shipwrecks, you know, from contemporary times in the Bahamas and things like this. So this idea that this is not possible is just that's simply false. The CIA knew it was possible with Operation Stargate. The Soviet Union knew it was possible because both of them were spying on secure military facilities using non-local remote, view. yeah. remote viewing. So well, we've had we've had Lynn Buchanan on multiple times. Oh wow, Lynn's wow, awesome. I've read his I book. Lynn. I that love his awesome. book. Actually, tell him, if you see him, that the book he wrote, um, I forget the name off the top of my head, but that was the first book I ever read in my life seven years ago on remote viewing. It's got a purple cover. And it really the Seventh changed. Sense. The yes, seventh The place. Seventh yes. Sense. I yep. still have it somewhere on the bookshelf. I found that book at a library, a uh, bookstore. And it's probably why I incorporated, to be honest with you, clairvoyance into my book because I was just going to write a standard history of Atlantis. And I was like, I can't do that without these other sources because they're so compelling, but I need to prove to the reader that there is a scientific basis in non-local remote viewing. And actually it was Lynn Buchanan's book, the seven cents that put me over the top where I remember my girlfriend was like, you know, are you crazy now? And I'm like, no, read the damn book. <laughs> Look, he's doing it. I'm not crazy. And then we watched some documentaries with him in it. And she was yeah. like, I have no goddamn idea. Like, this is real. So, yes, this is real. So th this is something that's interesting because, you know, you go to the Perry Reese maps, you go to kind of uh, the whole Tataria aspect of things, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the mud floods, uh, the population problem. Um, I, I think that something major has happened on this planet within the last 300 years. You know, it's it's such an interesting idea because it's not something I've studied with the same um, intensity as I've studied, say, Atlantis or ancient Rome or Greece. 
topics I needed for this book. But it's fascinating. I mean, what do you think, uh, since you're, you've studied this much more than me, like, what do you think, because um, I respect your opinion. And I know that just like with yeah. Atlantis or anything, there's a lot of, you know, grifters out there, like on that same flat earth tip where everything is a Tartarian <laughs> ancient electrical conducting building. But what do you think about just say what would have been one of the catastrophes and what do you think precipitated? So the black plague, I think okay. this is a prime example. Um, mm. If you go to the French catacombs, right? You're right. I've been there. You have, <laughs> been, approximately, yeah, been there. Yep, you have approximately six square miles that have been excavated. Okay. Right. Right. There's about 60 square miles that have are are total. So 54 square miles that have not been excavated. Wow. Wow. You go down in there and you got all of these bones that are nicely placed. And, you know, Mm -hmm. 10 Jesuit priests did this over a 10 year period. Billions of bones. Right, right, right. That is the official story, I think. Oh, that is the official story that the graveyards were overflowing. They took the bodies, they burned them, they they sheared them down, and they put them into these nice patterns in the catacombs. Well, here's the thing is if you start if you start looking at how many bones are down, Mm. and you do the math, six square miles, right? That's approximately three million people right in that six square miles. Wow. Now multiply that times 10 for the 60 square miles. Okay. Wow. Wow. So that's what 30 million people. What was the population of Europe right. Right. during that time? Right. 3 million people population of Europe. Po- population of France was 300,000. Not even in a 10 year period. Can you have 3 million people, especially with a, a death rate of 60%. The numbers don't add so up. What, that, that's fascinating. What, what, what do you think that was then? So, well, here and here's another part of this. At the turn of the 20th century, in the in the population of the world was estimated to be one billion. Okay. Right. Yeah, that okay. makes sense. From 1900 to 1960, we had World War One, World War Two, the Spanish flu. We had mm-hmm. the rise of communism. Right. Maoism. Right. Yeah. Chairman Mao. Over a half a million people died just from that alone. Mm-hmm. Now, if you take into account mathematically, 1 billion people at the beginning of 1900, mm-hmm. and an 8 billion population today, that means that every person that survived from 1900 to current day would have to have eight had eight children, and those children had eight children, and those children had eight children, and those no, children right, had eight children. Right, right. The no, math you know, doesn't add up. No, it's, <laughs> now that you mentioned that, I've always even from, from a long time ago, been extremely suspected, like extremely suspect of quote unquote global census data. Because the same people that are pushing to depopulate the planet and the climate change horseshit, these are the same people at the end of the day who are responsible for these numbers. Yeah. And I find that extremely questionable that the people that have lied to you about everything would be magically telling you the truth. Um but that, that, that thing about the catacombs is is really interesting because it's like you have the physical evidence and yet there's no good explanation for that. So that's a really fascinating thing. I'm going to actually have to look into that one more. Well, um, then go in. And so in a lot of Tatarian people talk about the World Fairs. Um, yes, I, I have looked at that actually. Go to the literature of the times. 
let me ask you this. Um, you talk about the literature of the times, uh, mm-hmm. Mark Twain, right? Uh, right. You have, um, shit, uh, Little Orphan Annie. They're yeah, all right. talking about orphans. Right. Where the fuck are all the parents? How, how come all the literature from 1860 to the early 1900s are talking about all the influx of abortion? Orphanages overflowing with kids. Right. Where are the, the parents? Hmm. Where are the parents? You know, the catacomb thing, it reminded me, because I was not aware of that number. And once I was made aware by a person I trust, you don't have to really sell me that that's a wildly <laughs> different discrepancy than one, you know, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Um, but I think it's interesting because it reminded me of my colleague, um, Alexander Cheskevich, great writer. And he actually published a book the same month or around the same month I did that was so similar to mine that we we found each other. And I was like, have you been like reading my email or like have I been reading your notes in Polish or something like this? But we ended up being friends. And he, I cited a statistic he put in his book, Deja Vu, um, which is this hilarious discrepancy between the number of blocks in the Great Pyramid of Giza, 2.3 million <laughs> each weighing at least two tons, which I don't think most people realize that. Like two and a half, almost 2.3 million SUVs had to be stacked, if you think about that. Yeah. And I think most people have just no, no idea that it's that number. I think most people think, yeah, hey, it's like a couple thousand blocks and you never see the whole big picture, but it's like, no, go find a parking garage and count the cars. And then 2.3 million of those SUVs had to be moved. In precision. In precision across potentially hundreds of miles of region. Now, what he mentioned was, let's just pretend that could be achieved using non-technological means, which we've never demonstrated it could be. But let's just pretend they're really strong workers that work out all the time and can deadlift thousands of pounds, right? Um, the rate at which conventional historians say that pyramid was built, which is like, oh, Khufu built it over a period of, you know, 25 years. He's like, they would have had to have stacked nonstop 24 hours, a block every six minutes Mm -hmm. for 25 years without stop to achieve that. (laughs) He's like, how is that even possible? That's why even Edgar Cayce said they used extremely sophisticated technology and it still took a hundred years when they could levitate the goddamn stones. And yet we think a bunch of slaves dragged this up a ramp, which has never been explained or discovered sufficiently to. And by the way, Graham Hancock already proved that the slope and size of the ramp would have had to have exceeded the great pyramid in construction. So what then, well, we just need another ramp to build the ramp, to build the ramp. And then <laughs> you go into an argument at absurdum, but it's like, I think it, it, the catacombs was interesting to hear because there, there, there are so many cases like that where you just go, Oh, like I've been to the catacombs and you go, ah, okay, this is like a big graveyard and like a mausoleum, yeah. you know, kind of like a grim place. And you're like, okay. But then you don't realize like, wait a minute, how, how many people are actually here? You know, it's just like when I discovered during the the I'll call them the covid wars, um, the the true history of the Spanish flu 
and the radar signals and all of that. Um, again, I was totally unaware of that. I believe, just like most people, oh, yeah, you know, it was a disease, a pandemic that, you know, transmitted across the world. <laughs> it's like, no, it didn't start in Spain. And it wasn't the flu. <laughs> well, and that goes to the invisible rainbow, right? You're right. Right. You talked about that book. I've still not read that. Yeah, the invisible rainbow, the, the first uh, practice, the first test studies done with radar. Right. Right. <coughs> and me. it makes well, sense because human, we know, we know, as you mentioned, I think in a recent well, podcast, you know, human DNA is a receiver and transmitter of electromagnetic energy. So it's like, of course, you know, and they've even said that, you know, um, because a lot of people, of course, have complained about the 5G and it's going to do this and that. And they've already said, look, whether you like it or not, on some level, human DNA has already adapted on an epigenetic level to this new frequency. So it's like, and we've already gone through one, two, three, four, five G. So imagine if radar, which, you know, this had never been used, just suddenly gets blasted. It would be like if we went from one to like 57 G right now, of course, we'd all get sick and feel like crap. And then you inject yourself with, you know, Dr. Feelgood juice and the rest is history. So it's like, and then you just say, well, it didn't happen in Kentucky on a military base. Spain. We'll put it on Spain because that sounds good. And we were just in the Spanish American War. Uh, that sounds good. It's exotic, you know. Yeah, and, it's and exotic. You gotta wonder how many how many times that they blamed. Oh my God! Exactly those types of scenarios on other things, on warfare, or on disease, sure, or, sure. or pestilence. Um, you know, going back through history, is there's a lot of things that polio. make us question. Yeah, polio. DDT polio. poisoning. Oh yeah. no, it's not that. It's polio. You know, when we go back through history, though, I find that there's a lot of discrepancies. Um, I, I think, and th- this is my thoughts on the matter, because when I just look at the modern age, I look at like Nikola Tesla. Sure. I think Nikola Tesla was a, a, a byproduct of a dying age. Um, yes, he was. Absolutely. And it's know, really interesting. Like, I know um, Casey. Got him right over here. Right there. Oh, he's, he's on the wall. Over yeah. Here. I had to put him in my book because, you know, like I said, there is circumstantial evidence. I think pretty good evidence that Casey did give him a personal reading, Um, Mm -hmm. although you'd have to go file a special request to know that for sure. But it's pretty clear that the person he's talking to, he's like, you're an electrical engineer. You work for this company. And it's like at the date, that's when Tesla worked there. So it makes sense because a lot of famous people were visiting Casey. And in this story, he says that actually Nikola Tesla was a Atlantean scientist, and his name was Axtel in the Atlantean language or Poseidon language, and that, you know, he was an inheritor of all this wisdom, and that in Atlantis, he was basically responsible for using the same type of knowledge to use, because, I mean, actually, Casey's entire description of how the Atlantean civilization operated was on wireless energy Mm -hmm. transmission using a large crystal power plant and he's very detailed in how that worked you know and it's almost identical to like a Wardenclyffe tower on steroids using a crystal and i think tesla absolutely was onto the real science and then it was derailed for you know avaricious reasons because you can't make money well, off of wireless and for everybody out there who's who's listening to that part of it um Tesla had discovered something, uh, a new type of energy. 
And this is kind mm. of where the whole Atlantean energy comes in, the connected connectivity to the pyramids and the various different ley lines on the planet. Um, but what he discovered was this new type of energy, the source of where what we got today called retarded Hertzian waves come from. The electricity that we use today is 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 the byproduct of something else. Okay. Mm. So you know, can I can I just really jump on here? Because I got about 15 minutes. What you just said is exactly how both Edgar Casey and Frederick Oliver described what they called the night side forces. And let me find this quote because as an electrical engineer, even if it takes me a few minutes, you can keep talking. Um, this quote again is is absolutely fascinating, and it's from Frederick Oliver, who, again, was a 17-year-old kid when he wrote this. And he was talking about the source of Atlantean power. Because a dweller on two planets. And here, I'm pulling up the quote right now. I just had to do this on the fly. Um, okay. And he was asked, like, well, he wasn't asked because he was in a trance. He's just dictating a story of a past life in Atlantis in the year 11,160 BC. But he says here, here it is. Okay. So he, let me just quote this yeah. whole thing here, Josh. Um, he says, I have said that the Atlans wreck. Oh, hold on one second. Let me pull that back up. I just lost it. Here we go. Up, 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 uh, one moment here. Ah. Okay. So to answer your question, he said, in that day, forces arising... Excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. Here we go. Take two. He says, in that day, forces arising from the night side rendered inexpensive the production of any metal which might be found in nature, either native or as ore. As it might be done today, didst thou but now but know how. And that day is not far off when thou wilt again uncover the knowledge. So in that time, we transmuted clay first as, excuse me. He says, first raising its atomic speed so that it became white light of a pale illuminating power and then reducing it to the, so to speak, chemical milepost of aluminum. And this is at a cost not nearly so great as in the modern day it takes to get iron from its ores. The mines of native metals as gold, silver, copper, and so on were valuable then as now, requiring no processing save smelting, but a metal which might <clears throat> be obtained from any ledge of slate rock or a bed of clay was so inexpensive as to be the chief base metal in use. Now that's just the baseline of the night side, but to answer the electrical question here, I wanna tell you two things here. He said, he's talking about the sun. He says, thus the suns of systems are, excuse me, he says, thus the suns of systems are centers of forces of the night side of nature, whereof I spoke, and are force and matter of a higher value than our planets and satellites, just as water above a cataract is water, truly, but being above and mobile, 
flows over and down, developing energy. In other words, out of the cold, dark, negative side or night side force emerges, drawn to the positive polarity which constitutes in its outgoing flow that termed nature and develops in its fall magnetism, electricity, light, color, heat, and sound in order of descent. And lastly, solid matter, for this latter is a child of energy, not its parent. When the Navas forces drop to light, if the light waves enter a spectroscope, they will emerge as colors. This corresponds to the various spectrum bands and will, as the descent progresses, give the noted lines of the solar spectrum. Now, that's a 17-year-old kid in 1882 in a log cabin hmm. writing that with a provable chain of custody that nobody interrupted that. Right. Who never published that? His mother published it after he died. And it's like, in this case, I got to be honest, it is more likely that he was channeling a discarded entity or something or tapping into the Akashic records through voices that he claimed he heard in his head. Because that looks like something that Keeley or Tesla wrote, not a 17-year-old kid who was not an electrical engineer. You know? I I agree 100%. I agree 100%. And, and, you know, Tesla and Keeley and, and, and Steinmetz and all these guys of those times, mm-hmm. they are a different breed. They, they knew they a different are. version of electronical engineering than we know of today. And right. that was the, uh, the, the prime force, the prime mover. Um, you know, mm. we, we call this the life force energy, the chi, the prana, mm-hmm. uh, the, the orgone, whatever we want to call it. Yes. But this is, this is the field of which we exist in. So that yeah, ocean absolutely. that I was talking about earlier, right. that is quite literally the field that we exist in. Exactly. And that when you have force propagate through that and displace it, that displacement right. is what you got as light. I heard a, a guy talking mm. the other day. This guy is a, a quantum physicist. And um, he was saying that light doesn't really move. He goes, you're being lied to. He said, you're being lied to when they tell you that that star is a million miles away because we can see the light coming here. He goes, the photons, they don't move. They don't travel. They go, it, it's just like, he goes, it's just like the billiard balls. The force propagates from one ball to the other ball, to the other ball, to the other ball. and just keeps going forward. It's the ambient mm. structure of the universe. It's that Makes field sense. in the universe that is lighting up as a photon to pass that force. It, but you know what? It makes perfect sense that we think it moves because we've disregarded the ether and we think there's just empty vacuum between that star and Earth. Yep. You know, it's just like it's so interesting because it's just like how Frederick and I'm not sure if this is true, but Frederick Oliver says in that book, he talks about the sun and he's again writing in 1882. And so he's using the language of the dynamo, which had just been invented. And he's like, you think the sun is this like dynamo, that it's an engine that's really hot. He goes, but it's not. Because if that were true, the higher you got in the atmosphere closer to it, the hotter you would be (laughs) if that were true. And it's not the case. He says what it is is it's a focal point on what he calls like in their understanding of energy, it moves in circles. And he says at the point where the positive loop hits the night side part, he's like you get things like this – like distortion field that's like in between and anything could happen. And he's like, that's what the sun is on a grander level, that it's a portal through which 
another source's energy comes through. And that's why in his science, the sun, and I'm sure why in so many solar cults, the mm -hmm. sun was God. Mm -hmm. You know, it was the prime evolutionary life-giving source because they didn't just see it as this like, you know, a heat lamp that you put the burger under at McDonald's like we think of it. It was a thing that we, because of the structure of our atmosphere, we see it that way through our atmosphere, you know. Right. But if we you were see to the nails, the, the screws, or the three boards in the window. Exactly. Exactly. And so we assume that, oh, if you get closer to the sun in space, it's going to get really hot. And then it's like, how do we know that, though? Because we're measuring it from the under the Earth's canopy, you know? Yep. So it's like, I think these topics, you know, like I always used to tell people, and again, this is no disrespect to anybody who's from um, Abrahamic faith, but I always used to tell people, like, you think it's silly that people worship a physical object that everyone in the world could see <laughs> that makes you feel warm and grows food. And if it doesn't come out, everything dies. You think that's silly. And yet, who do you worship? Right. And again, it's, it's not to make fun of them, but it's like you cannot universally prove Yahweh or Allah exists to people that do not believe that. But an atheist and a Christian can both sit outside and, unless they're delusional, go, okay, I both see the sun. I feel it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think it's like, again, it's that arrogance we have of all these silly sun worshipers. Why are they just primitive? You know, we're sophisticated. We believe in invisible spirits. And it's like, I don't even think we look at things on a basic childlike level. Because if we did, we would see you know, we're quite silly and superstitious in many ways. And perhaps these people, like Frederick Oliver was, at, oh, I keep saying was asked, Casey was yeah. asked, but Oliver, I put it in the book in the third chapter, like his whole definition of what religion was like in the final iteration of the island of Poseidon in the Atlantean Empire, where he lived, he claimed. And he's like, look, we didn't recognize any kind of God save Incal. And Incal Hold on, you broke up there, buddy. You bro you broke up there. The last thing we heard was uh, Casey living on the island of Poside. We'll get him back here in one second. Do 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 do. All right, come on. Let's get that Wi-Fi cranking up. Everybody send those good thoughts over to Michael. Get that Wi-Fi boosted. Help me out here. All right. So the island of Poseidon. So the island of Poseidon. I got that booster on order. Don't worry. Um, but, um, right. So he said, look, we didn't recognize any kind of spiritual God. He goes, we were quite practical people. We understood God was incal or what you would call the sun. Hmm. All things under incal made sense. Interesting. We, you see? Uh, Break it up again there, Michael. Hello. Hey, Jeff, I'm sorry. Yep, there you go. You're back. Hey. 
I'm really sorry about this. No, um, it's okay. It's but okay. anyway, for, for them, for them, for Frederick Oliver, or for the Posadians in the year 11,160 BC, because I can only be specific as he is, he's like, look, Inkal was God. Inkal was the sun. The sun drives all evolution. And he says, however, we did once believe that Inkal had an earthly manifestation here in Atlantis as an individual, as a human, that the sun walked upon the earth. And I find that very interesting because Edgar Cayce said the first incarnation of the Christ consciousness was in Atlantis as a character called Amelius. And hmm. that Jesus himself said, I am the first and the last. And according to Casey, the Nazarene or Yeshua was the final incarnation between 28 other intervening incarnations of Jesus. One says a Zoroastrian priest, one says something else, something else, something else. But that this was like a paragonic consciousness that went into a human avatar at certain points to drive human evolution, but was itself an emanation from Inkal, the sun, you know? So again, I think it's interesting that, you know, Tesla and these people that you mentioned, Keeley and Steinmetz, that, that they probably really, if they were left to their own devices and, you know, there wasn't the Rockefellers and Edisons out there trying to get them, um, we would be living in a Star Wars universe right now. We, we 100%. Would. We absolutely would. It was actually talking about this last night on the show um, with this uh, th this chick that um, her name's Amy Eskridge. Mm -hmm. And she passed away uh, about uh, two years ago, 2022. And um, she came out and she was doing this. Um, she, she did a what was it a a a youtube video with some some people mm -hmm. discussing um some work that she she was doing mm. and uh i will play you what she says in this video sure because i have a theory on this and i think that um this touches back to atlantis i think when she says time traveler here it's not mm. necessarily time travel let's, let's check this out story have you ever heard about amy eskridge she was a nasa engineer people are speculating online that she was assassinated because she blew the whistle on anti-gravity technology and time travelers from the future it's crazy shit, man was this a video you're gonna show me they are you they are me they're from here from the future p47 is present plus 47,000 years p52 is present plus 52,000 years. And basically there's a calamity, right? So there's like a apocalypse scenario in the near future. It wipes out most of like everything, man. And there's the ones that go underground and survive, right? And then there's the ones that somehow stay on the surface and miraculously don't die. So you're telling me that this chick made that video in 2022 and was suicided? Look, here's another video to give you a little bit more context. Let me tell you. I'm in Huntsville, Alabama. I know I've said that several times. We're the rocket city. We're the biggest deal you've never heard of. Von Braun was here and we won the space race. We developed the Saturn V here. We built the Saturn V here. We won the space race here in Alabama, whether you've heard of it or not. And I can tell you for a fact, so many prototypes 
so many prototypes only prototype built like this in the world you turn it on the first time it works exactly like you thought it would the first time great data you apply for more funding to test it more thoroughly they cancel it it goes to nasa divestment it goes to the auction block people bid on it and literally scrap metal scrap metal scrap metal vendors win the bid and melt it down for scrap metal and sell it we so she she was she died of suicide in 2022. Um, mm. She was a NASA engineer. She's, she's pretty like a, content. Yeah, she's a polymath. Uh, she has degrees right. in biotech, uh, biogenomics, um, physics, mm -hmm. chemistry. The girl's a genius. Her right. father is her father, Richard Eskridge, is a senior NASA engineer working on special projects. Um, wow. who's developed theories of anti-gravity for NASA, for JPL, okay? Like, everything she's saying is, like, legit. Everything right. that she did checks out. They're what we sure. call a prodigy family. Prodigy families are people who are in special mm. projects. They recruit from the family. They bring them in. They give them sure. an education. They go to the project. So she was going to publish this whole article on anti-gravity, and they had it ready to go out there, and they were talking to a whole bunch of UFO investigators. That's what that YouTube video was from. Wow. And she ends up dying, suicided, before it ever happened. Now, wow. when she said P-47, P-52, mm. take yourself back. What if, because she's saying, if you go back to uh, Robert Bigelow, who's a billionaire, who said that they walk mm -hmm. among us, that they look like us. And I'm going to turn off, I'm going to turn off uh, video, video, but I'm yeah. still here. He says that they walk among us, that they, they look like us and they walk among us. Right. That means they they are us, and right. so we can we can look at them as time travelers, or maybe that they're from Atlantis. Maybe they're time travelers from a far distant past, fifty thousand years or, ago. Or or as past. some of us, and again, I'm not qualified to to know if this is possible. I'm not a quantum physicist, but perhaps I mean some people have suggested that you know because time is you know, basically the present only that we are in Atlantis concurrently and that what we are doing now and what we quote unquote did then is indistinguishable that. <laughs> and I know that's a very, I even talk about that in the final chapter of the book, very hard intuitively thing to understand. Perhaps that is true on a quantumly entangled yeah. level that the events of Atlantis are coming back now and, you know, uh, it's like an echo from the past, what we call the past because we think linearly, but, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think anything is off the table. I certainly know that, I mean, as Grush and many others before Grush, Leonard Stringfield in the seventies knew this, they've got technology that, <laughs> that, you know, the guys at Skunk Works in the eighties said everything you see in Star Trek, we can do mm -hmm. everything materialize matter you know in a replicator cloak a starship build a starship you know interstellar travel we can do all of that in the 80s so god only knows josh what they got today 100 michael it's been a pleasure i know you gotta get going guys you can visit him at michaelleflem.com uh, my mod is putting those links out there right now. Appreciate you, oh, thank you. Uh, putting the, those links out there. It's also in the description uh, where you guys can find that. Michael, 
always a pleasure. Much appreciated for you coming oh, on. Can't wait to have you back, my friend. No, and, and thank you, Josh. You know, I got to say, um, during the, the, the bleakest times back in the beginning of, I want to say spring of 2020, I got to thank you um, and your, your, your show, because I think if I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have somebody at least that was aware of from the jump, what the hell was going on. I truly would have thought living in Chicago in a 100% woke high rise that I was going crazy, you know? <laughs> so I, I've always wanted to tell you that, you know, the work you did and then the work also that, you know, many others, um, that I later discovered, um, did, I think is so, so helpful because I don't think enough people really understand that, you know, there are very few people who have the training and, and wherewithal to, and, and not the ideological bias to actually distill this much shit that's going on in the world. And I think, you know, Josh, you're one of those people. Um, so I really appreciate the work oh, you do, especially on on foreign policy, which, you know, is, is my specialty from grad school. I think it's it's incredibly important that people understand, you know, just how much of a bubble we live in and, and what you will learn from the media as regarding foreign policy in any war, any country, and what you'll learn from the average educated podcaster are, are wildly different. So I, I, I salute your, your work on, you know, spreading the message of peace and, you know, detente when the world wants to go to nuclear war and, and, yeah. and genocide. So I think that's great. I appreciate the kind words, my friend. You're of welcome course. back anytime. We'll talk. Uh, for everybody Thank else you, out Josh. there, we'll be going to socialredpill.com, Fringe After Dark. Join us on over there. You can find it, socialredpill.com, redpillpatrons.com, socialredpill.com. And we'll be on Fringe After Dark in about 10 minutes. Much love, respect. God bless everybody. Take care. Have a great night. Take care. Do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Only try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon.